Sunday and Easter, we're going to look at a very famous scene in the Gospel of John, John chapter 13. Please follow along as Jesse reads our passage. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. When he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not now, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus, Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an, an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The word of the Lord. Thank you. I'm not saying it would be an easy question to answer, but if you ask me for one passage, summarize the Christian life. One passage for how to think about and respond to the finished work of Jesus Christ. One passage to sum up, in a sense, what Christ has done for you and what it means for you to follow him as Lord and Savior. If you force me to identify one passage as a paradigm for the Christian life, I might. I might identify this passage. I might point you to the words that were just read. I don't know how many kids here have seen the series The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. I saw season one. If you've not seen The Mandalorian, it's a Star Wars spin-off. The guy wears a lot of armor and he's carrying the baby Yoda around the universe. So that's about all you need to know. But kids, what do, what do the Mandalorians always say? What's the Mandalorian slogan for life? This is the way. This is the way. Kids, that's what I mean by a paradigm for the Christian life. In John 13, you can come to these verses, and Jesus is in effect saying to you, this is the way, the way to know him and follow him. Let's see that in three parts. 
three parts. I'll call the first part the fullness of love. The fullness of love. We now begin what's called the farewell discourse. Jesus is in a small upper room with his disciples. He knows he's about to be arrested wrongly, tried in a sham trial, and crucified as a criminal. But verse 1, verse 1 provides a kind of caption for this entire scene. So I want to drill down into verse 1 briefly. Look at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So catch that. Jesus knows the time of his sacrifice has arrived. He knows he's about to go to a cross to be our Passover lamb, that God's judgment would pass over all who believe. Knowing all of that, we are told, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Here's how John wants us to think about what lies ahead. He loved his own. Who's that? Well, certainly his disciples here, but his disciples are representatives of the community of God's people now being explicitly formed in and around the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They are, we are, his own, his own people, his bride, the church. So they are, we are, notice, objects, objects of his special love. God has a love for the entire world. John 3.16, God so loved the world. But you should realize that God has a special love, a saving, redeeming kind of love for his own. It's kind of like this. I sincerely love every member of Grace Church. I do. Now, you are easy to love. I grant that. But I I sincerely have, I believe, an affection from God for every member of this church. But I must confess to you, I have a special love for only one member of this church, my wife, Sung. She is the most important human relationship in my life. She is at all times my priority. If she is hurting, I will seek to comfort her. If she is down, I want to encourage her. If she needs support, I will support her in any way I can. I love all of you but I have a special love for her. Now listen, that special love I have for Sung, it is the faintest of reflections of God's special love for you if you are his own. And notice, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Now, that could mean he loved them to the fullest extent, to the uttermost. Or it could equally mean he loved them to the end of his life, to his 
sacrifice of his life. Either way, the point is the same. Jesus shows the fullness of his love, the fullness of his love by his death on a cross for our sins. That's the caption John wants us, God wants us to take in at the outset. So I want to ask you from the outset, are you here this morning doubting his love for you? Though you are his own, do you think he now loves you less than he once did? Are you perhaps here thinking you have forfeited some of his love somehow? As long as I have the privilege of serving you this way, friends, I, I will not tire of pausing like this and reminding you that the greatest demonstration, the undeniable demonstration of God's love for you is the cross of his own son. As an eldership, we will not tire of reminding you to look up a hill called Calvary where God the Son, God in the flesh, endured the holy judgment of God in your place for your sins that you might be adopted as his child. That is the greatest proof of God's love for his own, for you. He loved you to the end. And so with that caption, the fullness of Jesus' love, see with me secondly what I would call the double cleansing. Secondly, the double cleansing. Verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things, all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So catch that. Jesus knows that Judas is about to betray him, and he knows the source ultimately of that betrayal is satanic. And he knows the Father has given all things into his hands, all rightful rule. And he knows he's going back to the Father, to his rightful place of glory. Knowing all of that, what does he do? Wraps himself in a towel in verse 4 and performs the most menial task in his day, washing his disciples' feet, one by one, washing their feet. See, in this day, people walked everywhere, of course, and they wore sandals, and most roads were just dirt roads, and so their feet were constantly filthy. So who wants to wash filthy, stinking feet? Anyone want to volunteer for that? This act was considered so low, it was typically only performed by non-Jewish slaves. It was, it was so menial in their eyes, so demeaning. Maybe today, I had trouble thinking of a contemporary analogy, but maybe today, the closest would be someone who comes to scrub your toilet. Imagine the, the Queen of England shows up at your house today. Hi, I was wondering if I could scrub your toilet for you. That's what the disciples are trying to process here. 
And that's the heart of God toward you in Christ. Jesus will say in the next chapter, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You're seeing Jesus washing their feet in this act so menial and demeaning out of love and compassion. You're seeing the Father's heart on display for you. You see, in this upper room, no servant seems to have been present. But more than likely, a towel and basin were left at the door. The disciples, as they entered this upper room, would have seen the towel and basin. And, and I imagine stepped aside, stepped quickly around it. I'm not, I'm not doing that for Matthew. <laughs> I'm not doing that for John. Definitely not for Judas. I know he's taken from the money bag. It's kind of the reaction we can have, isn't it, when, when that announcement is made for more help in the nursery, <laughs> more help on the setup crew. Ah, <laughs> somebody better do it, but I don't think it's going to be me. I think we can relate to this. The disciples weren't going to do this for each other, so Jesus did it for them. They realized this is entirely inappropriate, culturally speaking, to have your master, your rabbi, washing your own feet, performing the task of a slave. They're all realizing this. They're all inwardly objecting, but Peter's the guy with no filter on his mouth. So he says in verse 6, Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, after the cross, afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. These pronouns are, are emphatic. You shall never wash these feet of mine, never. Jesus answered him, notice, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Literally no, no inheritance with me. In effect, no relationship with me. You start to realize, don't you, that this mind-blowing act of service is being used by Jesus to point to something else. So Peter responds, well, wa wash all of me then. I want an inheritance with you. I want share of you. I want a relationship with you. So wash me in any way you need to, Jesus. Jesus replies in verse 10. Look at verse 10. The one who has bathed, let me just bring you in this, into real life for you, Peter. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. That's why I call this the double cleansing, because there are two levels of meaning here. John loves to do this. What the foot washing demonstrates, humble servanthood. And what the foot washing symbolizes, cleansing from sin. You see, the disciples don't yet have a category of a Messiah who would be crucified as a criminal. In their minds, Messiahs, <laughs> messiahs win, Messiahs conquer. Messiahs drive the tanks over your enemies. Messiahs don't get killed. 
So Jesus is preparing them for what's about to happen. His self-humiliation in washing feet symbolizes, points to, prepares for his self-humiliation in going to the cross for our sins. You see, the bigger problem for me and for you is not filth on our feet, but filth on our souls. And Jesus has come to make you completely clean, in the words of verse 10. Completely clean. So I want to ask you here to care for you. Are you still aware of your need for this cleansing? You still aware of that? Maybe here's a better question. How, how close are you staying? How, how close are you staying to your need for cleansing from sin? Maybe this will be helpful. These, these disciples, they're, they're about to desert Jesus when he's arrested that very night, they're, they're going to abandon Jesus. And he knows this. And not just Peter, who denies him three times. All of them flee. In a matter of hours, they're going to utterly fail him. But Jesus loves them as his own, loves them to the end, and has declared them clean through faith in him, in effect. Take that to heart. You and I fail him every day in thought, in Motive in words, in actions. Are you still aware of that? Or have you begun to forget? I have not read many novels. But one I, I read maybe a year ago was the novel Silence by Shusaku Endo. And there's a film version by Martin Scorsese. It follows two, two Jesuit priests in 17th century Japan who go to Japan looking for their missing mentor. And they eventually find their mentor and realize he has apostatized. He has renounced Christ. And those two priests eventually do as well because they're put in an impossible situation the Japanese Christians are being slowly tortured until these priests renounce Jesus. But I was struck by the comment of reviewer Brett McCracken. He said, the best Christian in silence is the worst one. He was referring to Kichiro, the, the drunken apostate who betrays the priests. Kichiro, he said, is the film's worst Christian. But that's why he's the best, because he's the one most aware of his sin. See, the priests start out very sure of themselves. I would never betray my Redeemer. I would never, ever fail him. But Kichiro knows he would because he did. He's very much aware of our sin, he, his sin. He lives very much aware of his need to be cleansed by Christ. Now, I am not saying we should live in some constant state of condemnation by no means, but I think McCracken's right. 
for the most joyful Christian and the most humble Christian stays aware of their need for this cleansing by Jesus. The most joy-filled Christian is the one most aware I need to be completely cleansed by Christ. So every day, friends, every day, bring your failures to Him, the one who makes you completely clean. Then you will sing. You will sing with joy and you will sing with passion. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. You will be singing that every day. And if you are presently outside of Christ, Jesus says to you what he said to Peter. Unless I wash you, you have no share with me, no, no relationship with me. So I want to ask you, do you deny your sin and guilt? Do you deny your need to be cleansed in your soul? Or are you trying to cleanse yourself somehow before God? Look, whomever you are, whatever your situation, come to Jesus with no hope in yourself. Trust in Christ alone for that cleansing flow that makes you white as snow. But this scene, this scene has even more to do with our lives. So see thirdly with me, thirdly, what I would call the paradoxical blessing. The paradoxical blessing. Verse 12. Jesus sits back down and he says, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, you might say a paradigm, an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So the foot washing is more than an example, but not less than an example. It is a call to follow Christ in loving, humble service, not literally washing each other's feet, but applying that to our own cultural context, context and humbly serving one another. I think that means at least a couple things. It means first that we're available we're always available to serve others. That no act of service is somehow below us or beneath us. I read, and I think it might be true, that John 13 is very possibly behind the Christ hymn of Philippians chapter 2 which reads as follows, Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, clutched, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a slave, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's a beautiful summation of John 13. But those words, those words are set in a context in Philippians 2 of having an entirely new way of thinking in the church. The apostle says right before this, do nothing, nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Talk about a challenging verse. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Then he tells of the humility of Christ, the foot washer. That's the mindset we're to have, isn't it? I will count those around me more significant than myself. So if there is a need in the nursery, let's say, John 13 calls us to say, you know, I'm not above that. I'm available. If there is a need on the, the setup team, I'm available. It's humble. And secondly, I think it's also willing. It's available and it's willing. It, it's, it's eager. Eager to serve. This, this is the last night of Jesus' life. I mean, if this were me, I'd say, I need some me time, guys. Can you? I got to process this. This is my last night on earth. I need some me time, okay? Back off. What does Jesus do the last night of his life? He washes feet. And this is the one of whom John chapter 1 says, Through him all things were made, and without him was not anything made that has been made. So all things, all of this created through him. All of this, nothing exists that was not made through God the Son, now wrapped in a towel, taking the role of a slave in this society. Oh, friends, the one who loves us as his own and cleanses us from sin. How could we not be willing to follow him like this? Willing to serve those around us. But notice, happily notice a promise associated with this command. Look at verse 16 promise here. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant, a slave, is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you, happy are you, if you do them. Did you see the promise? You take the attitude of a servant, a slave of Christ, and live this out. You do these things. You will be happy in soul. You will be blessed, according to verse 17. I read recently that Winston Churchill, when he was voted out of being a prime minister in Britain at the end of World War II, 
just voted out of being prime minister after the war. His wife, Clemmie, sought to encourage him. She said, perhaps it's a blessing in disguise. And Churchill responded, it appears to be very effectively disguised. That's how we can think about verse 17, isn't it? Loving, humble, sacrificial service, count others more significant than myself, doesn't sound like a blessing to me. Must be very effectively disguised as a blessing. That's why I call this the paradoxical blessing. There's a paradox here. In dying to self, you truly live. It's kingdom joy found in sacrificial service. I read of a French parable about a man who spent most of his time serving other people. He's just great about it. He takes a walk in the woods. He runs into a genie who says, Hey, I've heard of your great reputation for service. I am so impressed. I will grant you one wish, anything you want. The man says, I am tired. I am burned out. I don't want to serve anymore. I want to be served. And the genie says, okay, you got it. And everybody in the kingdom starts to do for this man, starts to serve him. Even the king starts to serve this man. Three months later, the guy runs out, finds the genie, says, genie, I'm going crazy. I can't live like this anymore. I need you to change it back. Why? Because when we simply focus on ourselves, we start to lose ourselves. We lose true joy, true happiness in Christ, don't we, friends? What Jesus said about money is true for all of life. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's the paradox. We must put this into practice. Verse 17 says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So we should ask, how will you do this? How will you do this? How will I do this? How, how will you do this? Years ago, I took a class from New Testament scholar D.A. Carson on the Gospel of John. And this past week, I was just going through my notes from that class on this passage. And one thing grabbed me. Carson said the following. He said, Jesus here, John 13, Jesus is envisioning an entirely different ordering of human society. Jesus is envisioning an entirely different ordering of human society. In other words, this, this should transform every realm of our lives, every realm of human society for us. So, so think about maybe the two main ones for you and me, most of us, the home and the church. And ask yourself, how does God want me to be available and willing to serve in the home? thought about children here and teenagers. This could look as simple and as profound as taking out the trash before you're asked to do so. That could be great application and blessing 
or maybe single adults with your roommate. I am sure it's not always easy, but that every day provides an opportunity to show some kind of humble, loving service to your roommate. You'll be blessed. But I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to think this through with the husbands in particular, just for a moment. You know, husbands, according to God's word, we have a, a leadership role in marriage. And yet too many husbands, too many husbands see that as a platform to be served. I'm the leader. I'm the head, Ephesians 5 says, so serve me. Well, John 13 flips that on its head, doesn't it? It says leadership is a platform to serve, not be served. It's an invitation to die to yourself. To die to yourself and to live out humble, Christ-like, loving, sacrificial service to your wife first and foremost every day. So it's Valentine's Day, right? So husbands, ask her later on, Honey, how can I serve you better? How may I more consistently express humble, loving, sacrificial service to you? And then consult Ephesians 5 for more information. There is blessing, brothers, spiritual joy as you do. That's the home. How about the realm of the church? How is God calling you, perhaps, to be available and willing to serve others in the church? There, there, are, there are always ministry teams that need help. Setup crew and sound team right now are perhaps the main ones at the moment. All the other teams, all the other teams are going to need help when we eventually move back into the community center. But start right now in your home group, in your small group, where so much of church life happens, right? In verse 14, Jesus says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, your master, your rabbi, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. One another's. This is mutual ministry. Wash one another's feet. And you know what? Mutual ministry is a call to the messiness of life. It's a call to wash each other's stinky feet in our struggles, our challenges, our sin, our temptations. It can, it can look like compassionate prayer. Oh, brother, oh, sister, can I just pray with you? My heart is breaking. It can look like an encouraging word from Scripture or, or texting some biblical promise or whatever it might be to give them hope through God's Word. It could look like a meal. You bring a meal. It could look like you offer babysitting or just a listening ear. Look, application here is, is potentially endless, <laughs> But pursue the blessing there. Think of your home group. Realize it's a context for you to do these things and so be 
blessed by God, be happy in your soul as you follow Christ. And then one more. You can apply this to human society outside the church as well. It seems clear that Jesus also washes, his, washes Judas's feet. Judas, who in a matter of hours or less, will betray him, as Jesus knows. And this is incredibly hard and incredibly powerful to love and serve those who are opposed to Christ. In a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity, friends, this is our opportunity to show them Christ and to do what Romans 12 says, overcome evil with good. I hope you can see why this passage can be a paradigm for us, why this passage is the way, you might say, as Christ loved and cleansed people, as Christ deeply loved and completely cleansed people, follow him in lovel, loving, rather, loving, humble service to others in his name. So let's pray. And those who are going to serve us the Lord's Supper can prepare to do so. And Philip, come on back. I don't know what this looks like for you, but I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to lead each one of us. Take a moment to interact with God about what we've seen in his word. If you're aware of ways that you, you refuse to serve others, you refuse to count others more significant than yourself, first acknowledge that to him and know his cleansing work afresh. And then ask him, Lord, what does this look like for me next? How do I begin to do these things since I know these things? Most of all, let's ask him, to make us very much aware of his love. That we might show that love to those around us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for preserving in Holy Scripture this profound passage that God the Son that God incarnate 
would take the role of a slave to remind us of how he has served us on the cross to keep us amazed at grace and secure in this cleansing. Lead us, we ask you, Spirit of God, how you want to use us in this body, how, to, how you want to use us in the church, in the home, and outside of our church and home. Use us, we ask you. Lead us, we pray. All for your glory. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.